Good job. Well, good morning. Good to see you. Welcome to Emmaus Church community in the middle of the summer. Glad you're here. Um, come on in. Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. If you're on the edge of an aisle and there's a basket near your seat, would you pass that down? There's cards in the baskets, and if you'd like to fill out a card with contact information, you can do that. Or give us a prayer request, and we'll pray for you this week in our staff meeting. Great. We'll be in Genesis today, chapter 6, which is on page 4 in these Bibles that the ushers have. So if you'd like to follow along, we're looking at a three-chapter chunk of Scripture, so that's a lot of, that's a lot of Bible. Um, and I'm going to summarize it, but it, it'll be helpful if you have it there with you. So I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. I've been at the beach the last few days with my family. We've done this um, every year for over 30 years. It's quite a tradition. We're super grateful for it. Um, and it's been, um, again, it was a great week of connecting with, with each other. I want to say thanks to, I don't think either of them are here. It's just vacation land these days. But um, thanks to Nick Zerwas, did a great job preaching last Sunday here, and to Stephanie Zerwas for preaching the week before. I was actually in town the week before I was over at Heritage Church. What did I say? That's good. Let's not connect that. Let's start. <laughs> Stephanie Van Tassel and Nick Zerwas. Thanks. <clears throat> You'll forgive me if I still have sunscreen on my brain, please. Um, Yes, both of those are our board members uh, here at the church, and it's so good to have them uh, as part of the teaching team. I'm grateful for them, and I think they just do a fantastic job. So here, let's do this. I'm going to say a name from the Old Testament. You see it, what, uh, what association you have with that name. You may know nothing about the Bible. You may have never even opened it, but I bet you know something about this name. What comes to mind when I say Noah? Flood. Did you say flood? <laughs> good. Right. Everybody knows this story, right? Noah's flood, uh, Noah's ark. This is sort of epic story from the Old Testament. It shows up in every kid's Bible. It makes the cut. You know, the edited version of the Bible that gets down to like the third grader level or the three-year-old level, and there's a picture and everything. Um, it's probably easily top three most popular stories in the Old Testament. Almost everybody has a general sense of something about this story, and yet it's, it's one of the most misused one of the most misunderstood stories of the Old Testament. I want to look at this, uh, look at this story today together, and I want to consider how we might respond to it uh, today. There are all kinds of flood stories in the world. Did you know this? I knew that there were, there were some flood stories. I, I was aware of a few, but uh, over the last, last week when I was preparing for this sermon, I found a catalog of several hundred flood stories in different cultures ar around the world. It's, it's as if every culture in the world, in their folklore, has some story about some epic, massive, cataclysmic sort of world deluge or, or flood. Um, not just Middle Eastern cultures, African cultures have stories about a flood. Um, Asian cultures have stories about a flood. Here's the big picture from a Hindu version of the story of the flood. Um, South American cultures have stories about a flood. Here's, an, here's a Mayan folklore story about, uh, about a big flood. Pacific Islanders have stories about floods. So different cultures, different religions have these flood stories. And of course the details vary, but what's really kind of crazy is how remarkably consistent the, the big theme of the story is. The similarities, in other words, are remarkable. So what do you do with that? 
What do you do with that? Scholars from a wide variety of disciplines agree that something happened, and it happened a long time ago. Right? That's about what they say. Yeah, something big happened, and it happened a long time ago, and it either affected the entire world, or it affected a common ancestor of the entire world, who then passed on the story to descendants, who then went across and around the, the entire world because there are literally hundreds of versions of this flood story and they are all around the world. Now, the Bible's version of the flood story is the most detailed version known. It's the most detailed, specific story about the massive flood and it's found in chapters 6 through 9 of the first book of the Bible called Genesis. If you have the Bible that we handed out here this morning, it's on page 4. Um, so it's a lot to read. Let me just try to hit some highlights for us. I'll put them up on the screen. And I think for many of you, the, the, the main points of the story are familiar. Here's how the writer puts it in chapter 6, verse 9. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. Noah had three sons. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So, make an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it, coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. And then God goes into amazing and remarkable detail about the specifications of this huge barn slash ship called the ark that um, is supposed to carry Noah and a bunch of other um, beings or creatures. Here's chapter 6, verse 19. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures male and female, to keep them alive with you. Verse 22, Noah did everything just as God commanded him. Down to chapter 7, verse 1, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. So now twice we've heard Noah being compared to his generation. Not only is he a righteous man, but he's especially, there's a contrast, there's a high relief between Moses, I'm Moses, um, Noah, and the rest of the culture. It's especially, in other words, glaringly obvious that this man is different. Uh, the, the, the generations are evil, but Noah is different. Verse 5, again we hear this, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him, and rain fell on the earth forty days and forty nights. Every living thing that moved on land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swam over the earth, and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. All right. Um, after about a year of rain and flood, 
finally comes to a stop, and Noah comes out, his family comes out, animals come out, and then the next thing he does is he sacrifices some of the animals to God, which has always struck me as kind of, oh, too bad for those guys, right? Like, you get picked, you get on the ark, you survive for a year in the boat, and then you get sacrificed <laughs> to God, right? Insert your, uh, your unicorn joke there, or, or whatever it takes, or this is, a, this is a, a birthday card that my sister gave me a couple years ago. I don't know if you can see that, a couple of dinosaurs watching the uh, ark pull out. Oh, crap, that was today? Our summer series is called The Well-Worn Path. What we're doing, and this is the final version, the final uh, week of the series, we're looking at ancient stories, and we're looking for guidance for the road ahead. That's what we're doing. We're looking at these ancient, well-known stories, in many cases, sort of these um, mythical, sort of, they're part of our culture even, even in America. Um, and, and one of the iconic stories, and we're doing this because we want to see what, are, what do these stories tell us, what kind of guidance do they provide for us as we move ahead? What are the stories that have been told on the road? of the faithful as they walk along? And how have these stories captured imaginations and cemented truth and catalyzed the lifestyle of the faithful for, for, for years, right? One of the most iconic stories in the Bible is the story of Noah and the flood. And, and this story, if all you had was the version of the story that I read or something similar, this would be important in its own right. It's important because the events of the flood is put into context the rest of the Bible, the, the, the biblical account of the flood, even if there's a, a thousand other accounts of the flood, the biblical account of the flood is important because it puts the flood, it puts the events of the flood within the greater contents of, of the rest of the biblical story. In other words, it tells us what happened and it tells us why it happened, right? There's a second reason that the biblical account of the flood is really important, and it's because it is referenced the biblical account of the flood in Genesis 6 is referenced in the New Testament by Christian writers, by Christian teachers. So this is not just something that exists who knows how long ago, but it is important because it is referenced by Peter, by Jesus, and by the writer of Hebrews. So we have this Noah's Ark story which is, it's fascinating. Let me tell you a few things about the story. It's fascinating. There's just some crazy things, like God regrets creating humanity. That's really fascinating. What is that about? God regrets. And it's mysterious. Humans are living hundreds of years. There's giants walking around. It's mysterious. It's sort of pre-time. It's, it's the strange era, and there's really mysterious things happening. It's detailed, there's the specifications given for the ark are so precise, you can duplicate it today. You can rebuild it today. And then there's some wild stuff about the specifications, and I'll just give you one example. In terms of the height, width, and depth of the ark, it's the, it's the same ratio as the human body. That's wild. And the church fathers make a big deal about that. In other words, they are saved through a body-like vessel. And so it's, it's fascinating, it's mysterious, it's super detailed, and it's horrifying, is it not? Everybody dies. Everybody drowns. How did this make the cut for the children's Bibles? I mean, don't you ever ask yourself this question? Here, let's read this story. It's the giraffe. It's always the giraffe. I know that's why it makes it. It's the picture of the giraffe. So cute. So misused, this story, right? It's a cute little story about animals. So the Old Testament story is amazing in and of itself. And then we get this fuller picture. 
we get this bigger story. The fullness of the importance and the significance of Noah's Ark is revealed in the New Testament. And so we get, and that's really what I'm primarily interested in. I'm interested in what it says in Genesis 6. Don't get me wrong. I'm especially interested in what Jesus says about Genesis 6. In other words, this ancient story is not about saving the animals. This ancient story is not about a flood that lasts more than a year. This ancient story isn't even about um, this, this ark, right? This, this ancient story, is, it's, a, it's a fuller story, and I want to say it's about two very important core dynamics of the gospel. Two basic ideas that live at the core of the Christian message. And so part of the value of retelling these ancient stories that have shaped the lives of the faithful people of God for millennia on the well-worn path of faith is allowing these ancient stories to remind us on a really graphic level, on a really memorable level, to remind us of theological truths that we must um, embrace and, and own and let to shape our lives. In other words, it's one thing to hear Peter or me preach a sermon about some ideas. Hopefully that's helpful. You know what's more helpful? A story about an ark and a flood. Because kids remember that. Adults remember that. It's vivid. It's graphic. It's disturbing. But it hopefully is very effective. If, if, it will only be a children's story. It will only be some strange, you're Christian, you believe in like Noah's ark? It will only be effective if we understand the fullness of the revelation of the meaning of the story as presented in all of Scripture, not just Genesis 6. So it's easy to get drawn into like the fringes. It's easy to get drawn into the details. And we want to explore the edges of our faith. We want to translate these things for our culture, I think. But we absolutely must make sure that our anchor remains fixed in the core in the fundamentals and the basic ideas of, of the faith, the doctrines articulated by and reiterated by Christians all around the world in different cultures over 2,000 years. So the story of Noah and the ark and this great flood serves as a graphic reminder. Here's my thesis this morning. Here's the main idea. The, the story of Noah's ark serves as a graphic reminder of two essential truths. Two essential truths. And we have to go back to these truths over and over again, friends. We have to go back to these truths. We have to reiterate, rehearse, remind ourselves of these core truths over and over and over again. Here's the first one. Uh, the first is this, this truth of divine judgment, this doctrine of divine judgment. This is essentially the idea that God judges the world, okay? Kind of fallen out of popularity as of late, in Genesis, the flood happens as God's judgment of humanity, which has become totally corrupt and violent. When Jesus refers to the story of Noah's ark, Noah's flood, he is also talking about this doctrine of divine judgment. Here's what Jesus says the one time he cites Noah's flood. It's in Matthew. It's also in Luke um, I'll quote Matthew's version, verse uh, 36 out of chapter 24. But about, this is Jesus. But about that day, no one, or about that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and give, being given in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. 
One will be taken, the other will be left. Two women will be grinding with a hand, with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Here's his point. Here's Jesus' point. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. So Jesus is using this ancient story of the flood to teach about this rather unpopular but very core idea in terms of what the Bible says about God judging humanity. Jesus connects that divine judgment to the second coming of the Messiah, to his own return, the Son of, of Man. That's, he's talking about himself. So he's connecting judgment to that day that he comes back. Um, there, in other words, he's saying that there will be a judgment. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a, a massive evaluation. Use whatever word you want. The writer of Hebrews says in chapter 9, verse 27, people die once and then face judgment. There's no reincarnation in the biblical worldview. There's no second chance. Okay? People die once and then face judgment. There will be a point at which, in other words, everything that you've done and all that you've become will be totally and accurately revealed by God. Right? The creator of the universe will reveal what's real about who I am and about what I have said and about what I have done. He will reveal it. The, the one who has given me life will reveal the reality of who I am and, and what I have done. Now, this doctrine or teaching of divine judgment, I think we can argue about when it happens, how it happens, to whom it happens, and I've certainly been part of groups, especially when I was in college and grad school, that have gotten so lost in the weeds on the details of this doctrine that we've lost the main point. Let me just reiterate that. This is common for Christians. We get so lost in the weeds of the details that we forget the main point. What's the main point? It's going to happen. <laughs> That's the main point. There's going to be a judgment. There's going to be a revelation of, the of a very real, pure, exact, accurate revelation of what is actually true about each of us. And then there will be a judgment of that. Your life and mine will be totally exposed, accurately evaluated by the one who has given us life. That's a hard, that's a hard reality, and it's a core reality of the Bible. A couple years ago, I, was, uh, I just turned 42, and I went away for a bit, and I just wanted to be with God. I had no agenda. I just felt like I needed to be quiet for a while. I needed to uh, listen for a bit. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't even know what I was going to work on or, or think about or study. And, but I got, um, you don't need to see the details there, but what happened was I, this over, I got overwhelmed with this sense of urgency about being in my 40s. Um, and it was, it was really interesting to me. It didn't happen when I turned 40. It happened like, oh my gosh, I'm, I'm in my 40s. I'm, I'm in it. I'm in them. I'm like two years. I'm, I'm way in here. I cannot. And so here's what happened. I thought, I can't miss this. I can't miss this decade. This is too important. I can't afford to just sort of roll through a year, even a day of my 40s. Like, I'm not a kid anymore. These are the kinds of thoughts I was having. I'm not in my 20s. I'm not even in my 30s. I'm in my 40s. People think I'm an adult, right? I got to act like an adult. I have to be an adult. I have this written on my glass board right by my desk, B43. I got to change that in a couple of weeks, all right? Be like, this is who, you got a family, right? You lead a church. You are 
relatively healthy and you've been given an education and you've invested it. It's like, and then the, don't let it go. Don't let it slide. Don't let it slip. Don't, this is, what, this is, the, this is the way it came to me. Don't coast into your 50s. That's, what it, that's the way it came to me. Now, you may be at the end of your 40s already. You may be at the end of your 50s already. Maybe at the end of your 70s. It doesn't matter. Maybe you're just kicking off your 20s and it's all, maybe you're nine, right? It doesn't matter because here's, it doesn't matter how old you are. This is what matters. You've been given life, and all of us only know that we have today. All as we really know is today, right? I got today. You got today. Nobody knows about tomorrow, next week, when you turn 40, 50, 80. You've got today. And so today is a gift, and with that gift comes a responsibility to invest that gift well, right? Every day that we're given is a gift, my point is not how old you are. The point is that today is a gift and it needs to be invested well. There's a responsibility that comes with this. And friends, this is not a management idea. This is not a time management idea. This is a theological idea, right? This is a doctrinal idea. This is a spiritual reality. What's the reality? Divine judgment. That's, the, that's ultimately the reality that fuels this. What's the doctrine that fuels this? The doctrine that says that every day of my life is a gift and I will be evaluated at some level. I will be judged based on how I invest this day. Right. The Bible, so so I, I created this, at, I call it my at 50 plan. And basically I just tried to identify um, my core roles and what I wanted to be able to be honestly and accurately said about me, specifically by my children, when I turn 50, and it's been something that's been a, a helpful thing for me. Now, the, the biblical doctrine of divine judgment is not popular uh, because we don't want to be held accountable. Uh, we prefer the idea that you just get to do whatever you want to with the day, but that's an incomplete idea. There's a level of truth to that because God gives us freedom, but it's an incomplete picture because it's incomplete for this reason. It fails to recognize the enormous value of the gift of life as demonstrated, in other words, by Christ on the cross when he suffers and dies in order to give us life, right? So we cannot afford to sort of go, oh, it's, in other words, it's not, it's not enough to say, hey, hope you have a great day, right? I hope you have a great time. I mean, that's, an, that's good, but it's incomplete. This may not sound as fun, but it's, I think it's better to say, hey, you're going to be judged and evaluated based on how you live this day, so have a great day, right? <laughs> In other words, friends, it matters. It all matters. Every day, every minute, whether you're 42, 82, whether you're heading to college, whether you can't stay out of the hospital, it all matters, it is all vitally important. It is a gift of life, and it has been given to you. Often, last comment about this doctrine, often this doctrine of divine judgment is talked about in, in regard to fear. I'm not trying to encourage the posture of fear about this, because I don't hear Jesus doing that. Instead, I hear Jesus warning us, pay attention, be alert, don't be naive, don't be ignorant, be tuned in. Do you remember the old radios? You had to know what you were doing. You had to tune that thing in. You remember that? Right? You had to tune that in. It wasn't this digital. Tune it in. Right? Tune into the reality that time is short. Every day matters. Right? 
And whether it's through Jesus' return or my own death, I am going to be judged by the giver of my life. I'm going to be judged. There will be an accurate evaluation of what I did with the gift that I was given. And that judgment is coming like a thief in the night. Jesus says, like in the days before Noah, or of Noah. People are working, going on summer vacation, getting ready for school, working in the garden, driving to your friends, right? There's no, hey, it's about here. There's none of that. It's just like a thief in the night, right? Here's the, so don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Be ready. Don't be afraid. Be ready. It's your basic flood story. Isn't this great? It's your basic flood. It's your basic worldwide flood story. What is the warning that is associated with every flood story? Be ready, right? That's it. Not be afraid. Be ready. Be ready. It's your, it's your basic flood story. So the first core doctrine which the story of Noah and the flood puts on graphic display is the doctrine of divine judgment. Jesus quotes from the biblical flood story when he teaches on this core reality. The second core reality, the second core doctrine, I'll do this a little bit more quickly, that's put on display in the Genesis flood story is the doctrine of salvation. In other words, New Testament writers and teachers use the flood story for two reasons. One, to talk about judgment. Two, to talk about salvation, okay? That's the fullness of the old story. Peter is an example. He's one of Jesus' disciples, New Testament leader. He refers to the flood story in both of his letters, first and second Peter. Um, And he uses the flood story to explain the nature of salvation. Here's what Peter says. In it, the flood, he's referring to the flood, in it, Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you. Can you believe he just did that? (laughs) He started with the flood and he ended with baptism. This is is what he's saying. It, It takes us a second to get our heads around it. He starts with the flood. He picks up on the cleansing effect of the flood, right? He picks up on the washing clean of the world, with the flood. He picks up on the theme of starting over. And then he says the flood waters symbolize baptism that saves you. And this is Peter's early, this is his mantra, and this is the early church's mantra. Repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized. Recognize there's a judgment. Repent and be baptized. What should we do to be saved, people say? They always say, every single time, seven sermons and acts. Repent and be baptized. How should we respond to Peter's sermon? Acts chapter 2, repent and be baptized. And then he clarifies, thankfully, Peter clarifies the point of baptism. He says it's not the removal of dirt from the body, but it's the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. In other words, it's not about so much the physical act as it is the internal spiritual reality that is being connected to that spiritual act, right? And then even there, it's not even about you or me, Peter says, because it saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So Peter is taking volumes of reality and pushing them into tight little sentences. But in other words, he's saying, Jesus saves you. That's what what Peter's saying. Jesus saves you. The Christian understanding of salvation, just to be clear, the Christian understanding of salvation, it's all about Jesus. Jesus is the saver. 
Jesus is the Savior, right? He's the rescuer. Why do you need to be rescued? Because you're going to be judged. That's why. You're going to be judged, and you're going to need to be rescued. So the flood story, same with me. The flood story is used to declare these two basic truths. You're going to be judged, and Jesus is going to rescue you. That's the core of the Christian gospel. You're going to be judged, and Jesus is going to rescue you. You're given the gift of life, the gift of today. You need to invest it well. You're going to be judged based on what you do with this gift, but it's not all on you because Jesus is going to rescue you. Jesus is going to save you. If it were all on you, you'd be sunk. You would drown, to use the image of the ancient story. But it's not all on you because God has provided a rescue. The early church fathers referred to Jesus as the ark, as the boat. Why are they doing that? Because they're saying this, there's only one way you're going to get saved. There's only one way you're getting rescued from this judgment. You got to get on the boat, the boat that's shaped like a man. You got to get on. You have to be embracing Jesus. Peter says baptism saves you. What does he mean by that? Well, he's wrapping a lot of truth, as I said, into one experience. But he's basically saying that rescue is provided on the cross. We believe that Jesus died for the sins of the entire world on the cross. In other words, salvation is provided for the whole world. Rescue is provided on the cross. And rescue must be embraced. I must take it as my own. And that's what I'm doing when I'm baptized. I'm embracing that, that all includes me. Thank you, Jesus. Right? When I baptize people, I ask them three questions. Do you love Jesus? Do you believe Jesus saves you? Will you follow Jesus with the help of God? Right? And then we baptize them. Since the very beginning of the Christian church, baptism has been the experience that symbolizes and communicates the gift, both the gift of salvation and the embracing of salvation. When a person in Acts or the early church histories hear about the message of Jesus and they embrace it, the act, their act of embracing that message is the act of baptism. They express their desire to be rescued by being baptized. Because of what because of what happens in baptism, it's a sacred thing. Something actually takes place. What takes place? It's, it's your basic flood story. Again, it's your basic flood story. The sins and the corruption and the, um, the, the, the brokenness and the violence is all washed away in the water. It's all washed away in the water, taken down river right? And the, the old rebellious person is put to death. But that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is that then by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the person being baptized is raised up out of the water to new life, is born again, right? It's your basic flood story. So there's judgment and there's salvation, right? There's judgment and there's salvation. There's, there's truth and there's grace. That's the core. And, and, and I want to say that we can't ever forget it. That's, that's the story of the well-worn path. Um, that's why Noah's Ark is in all the kids' Bibles and why it should be there. 
because we need to communicate these core gospel truths in a way that makes sense to children. What are we communicating? That there's going to be a judgment and there's going to be a rescue, right? Embrace, acknowledge, accept the judgment and embrace, receive, call for, count on the rescue. There's judgment, friends, and there's salvation. There's truth and there's grace, amen? There's truth and grace. So, Josh, why don't you play behind us here? And I just want to lead us in a prayer time. And there's a couple things specifically that, uh, ways that you might respond. Um, one, maybe you, maybe you need to be baptized. Maybe you've never been baptized and you want to be baptized. And uh, we've prepared a little booklet. There's a couple copies on the information table outside. Um, this is something you can read with a friend. I would love to talk to you about this. Um, and it's just a, more information about baptism. You can also get it right on your phone right now if you text ECC baptism to this number, 51400. Even more important, I just wonder this morning if, um, if it would help us, if it would help you to move this intellectual knowledge to the place of your heart where it matters emotionally if you would do something to respond. Um, in other words, I wonder if it would be helpful for you in the middle of the summer to renew an acknowledgement of the reality of the fact that there will be judgment, that you specifically will be judged, and to renew in the middle of the summer your acknowledgement that you need a rescuer. I wonder if, if standing up just as a, a silent act of prayer acknowledging the presence of God here with us. Is this not why we've come together, right? To, to remind ourselves of what's true and then to encourage one another to respond to that truth, right? So not in any way to try to be super emotional or anything, but I just wonder if it would be helpful, if it would get this out of our foggy heads or sort of the, 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 the pace of the summer, if it would be helpful for some of us to say, by standing up, and I, will, and I am standing, to say, I acknowledge that I am going to be judged uh, by the creator of the universe. And I just, I just remind myself, I acknowledge the reality of that again today. And, and with that, I declare again. I remind myself, and I just say, in case this is my last day, I just want it on record. Jesus, I acknowledge that I need to be rescued by you as well. I'm going to be judged, and I need a rescuer, and I want, to, I want that truth to be the core of who I am even right now today. So as I pray, if that would help you to, to get out of your head and into your heart this morning, to just stand up and say, you know what, this morning I just, I just sort of reiterated, I just reconfirmed my conviction and belief of some really basic core truths in the Bible, that I'm going to be judged, and that my faith and hope rests in Jesus. He is my Savior. Let's stand if you'd like, and I'll pray with us uh, together. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. Uh, we acknowledge some of the hard realities that are revealed in graphic detail in Scripture. Um, beyond our understanding and ability to really fathom, but we want to, we want to acknowledge that this has been the story since the beginning, um, that Jesus himself acknowledged this reality. And with that, pushing fear out and, and holding only on to hope uh, and joy, that with that message has come loud and clear the message of salvation.
and that we can trust in you, Jesus, to, to save us where we ourselves don't even deserve to be saved, um, to rescue us from even our own sin and rebellion and mistakes and terrible choices. And so we just together as a church, we just want to encourage one another and say before you that we are here and we are accepting of your, of your gospel and we want to be people of the word and we, we trust you with our lives. Give us the grace we need to take hold of every moment. It, every moment matters. And give us a joy and a peace and a confidence that comes in knowing Jesus is my Savior. He rescues me. Jesus is the one who rescues me. And I thank you, Lord. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 Friends, let's take a minute, greet one another this morning, and uh, we'll come back together to sing for a bit to celebrate communion. May the peace of Christ be always with you. Thank you. Amen. Has it been that long? <laughs> you that beard. <laughs> I know, man. How you been?